0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Happy Memorial Day. Almost. Weekend. Um, as Elliot said, we're in this series wrapping up today called Not What You'd Expect. We're all very familiar with, of course, the theme to this message series, and that's because what we expect often doesn't fit with what actually happens. And it's in these moments of surprise that we have one of the great opportunities in life to grow and to adjust our thinking and to change. Now, the reason that life is often not what we expect is because God often turns out not to be who we expect. So in the pages of the Bible, God makes some statements that you would not expect. And each of these statements that we've been looking at points to an idea, a thought in our minds that doesn't fit with the way God has designed reality. And at that point, we can either adjust our thinking to God's thinking, and as a result, we can grow. Or we can do the other opposite. We can resist the way God has designed reality. We can get mad at God, and we can try to force our own way, and we can just kind of stumble through life. Now, today, we're going to end this series by looking at the time when God says that we actually have a good reason to be confident. It's very different than what you would expect. Here's The statement in Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16, says, let us then approach the throne of grace, here it is, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So when is it that we are told to approach God with confidence? It's in our time of need. Now, the type of need this is talking about is moral failure. It's talking about sin. The verses that precede this one are about how God responds to our sin, our failure. Now, confidence is not at all how we tend to respond to our moral failures, to our sin. We don't do what is wrong and then suddenly have this sense of confidence well up inside of us as a result of doing the wrong thing. It's, of course, it's the opposite. We get discouraged because usually this isn't the only time we've failed in this way, probably many times. We begin to feel hopeless about ourselves But in this verse, God says the opposite of what we think and what we feel about our own sin. He says that it's in our time of guilt, in our moments of moral failure, that there actually is a reason for confidence. That's not what you'd expect from God on the topic of sin. Now, this statement that he makes is a summary statement at the end of five verses. That's why this verse starts with, let us then. It's pointing to what had been sinned previously. So let's go back and consider the case that God is building that brings us to the point of confidence in the moment of moral failure. First, we're going to look at the idea of false confidence. This is where uh, God's argument begins. He makes the case that if we are confident in ourselves and our own moral performance, that is false confidence. And then we're going to look at faith Confidence. This is the place that we have reason for confidence because of what Jesus has done, not what we do. And then lastly, failure confidence, which is the test for where our confidence actually lies. So let's begin with false confidence. Now to be clear, sin itself is not the reason for you to be confident. So if you sin, that's not the reason for you to be confident. That's actually why you should not be confident In yourself it's evidence of why we can't count on ourselves and our moral performance i want you to think of a time in your life when you were brimming with confidence as you think about that time let me ask you why were you so confident my guess is it's because something that you had planned something that you'd worked hard for had succeeded for me one of the moments i'll never forget on this question is the Sunday that we met in this room for the first time. It was a standing-room-only crowd. We combined into one service. And I think that if you were here at that time, you'll, you'll remember this. We were brimming with confidence as a church. I mean, we had planned for this. We had given sacrificially for this. We'd worked hard for this to buy this land and move on to the site. And there was the sense that if, if this could be accomplished, then the future is bright. That was the summer of 2007. No one saw the financial collapse of 2008 coming. I mean, maybe you did. I didn't know anyone who saw that coming. Caught us all by surprise. As a result, the giving here went down 30%. At a time when we had stretched to to buy this land and we had a good mortgage. By good, I mean big mortgage. (laughs) At that point, conflict erupted on staff and some really good people left. And if you were to measure my confidence personally in 2009, just two years later, you'd have, you'd have been hard-pressed to find a pulse. There was no confidence that I felt. I mean, I felt like a failure. And I actually wondered if my leadership here had come to an end because it appeared that I'd, won, I'd let us off a cliff. Why did I feel like such a failure? That's because the opposite was occurring now. Everything that I'd planned for, everything that we'd worked for was falling apart before our eyes. God was gracious, and it ended up not going off the edge of the cliff. But boy, it sure looked bad in 2009. So now I want you to think back to the time when you were confident. What happened? What happened the next year and the year after that? Now, if you just kept piling up one success after another, then your confidence graph looks like this. I mean, you're, I don't know how to say it, you're just full of yourself because, I mean, you're, you're just amazing. You just kept piling up one success after another. But if your life story is more like mine and like most life stories, your confidence graph looks like this. It just kind of goes up and down and up and down. You know, there, there's moments of success and you think, wow, I'm, I'm pretty amazing. And then there's moments of, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not very amazing at all. I don't even know what I was thinking, and then, oh, no, I'm amazing again, and now I'm awful again, and then that's just the way confidence tends to go. Now, I've had this same experience morally. There are times when it feels like I'm on a roll here in doing what is right. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really good. But that is often followed by a time when it becomes clear that I'm not nearly as good or as amazing as I thought I was. Now, am I just being hard on myself in those moments? No, I don't think so. The verses that we are looking at this morning agree with this notion that we are not nearly as good as we tend to think that we are. And therefore, we have no reason, really, for confidence in our moral behavior. Here's how the case begins in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So it begins by saying that God's Word, the Bible, is living and it's active. What that means is it's not a set of ancient moral ideas. It contains what God says is right and what God says is wrong, not just thousands of years ago, but for all time. And the words that have been recorded in the Bible may have been recorded thousands of years ago, but because they are God's word, not just human words, they don't die. So if you pick up the Bible today and you read it, you will be measured by those words. And it turns out the Bible doesn't just measure your actions, your behavior. It measures also your thoughts and your attitudes. You see, in the Bible, a good deed is measured in two parts. First, there is the outward action. That's the way we measure a good deed. And the question with the outward action is, does this act conform with what God says is right? The second measurement is the inward motive. Those are the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. This question asks, are we doing it for the right reasons? What are the right reasons? The right reason in the Bible is out of a love for God. That's the pure motive that God wants. The wrong reason is out of self-interest. Now, why does God care about our motives. Why does he care about the inside part? I mean it's hard enough to get the outside part right. You add the inside part to it and it's well, it's impossible. So why does God care so much about the inside? It's because our actions are just the visible 10% of the proverbial moral iceberg. What we do is is just a small part of our moral hearts. So if we are doing the right thing, because it's in our self-interest to do it, then what happens when doing the right thing is no longer in our self-interest? Well, then we'll stop doing the right thing. For example, what if loving our spouse stops benefiting us? Well, then if our motive was self-interest, we will stop loving them, even though God says we should honor that commitment and keep loving them. Why will we stop loving them? Well, it's because we were doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. But if, on the other hand, we are loving our spouse primarily because we love God, then we can keep loving them even when we're not getting what we'd hope to get out of that marriage. You see, over time, the reason why we are doing things always wins over the what we are doing. That's why it's the 90% of the moral iceberg. That's what drives our behavior. And this is why the Bible, it says, is like a double-edged sword in this verse. A double-edged sword, at the time this was written, was the sharpest instrument of the time. So what this is saying is, the Bible is not just like a hammer pounding on us, saying, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. No, the Bible really is more like a a scalpel. It gets deep into your soul and it uncovers the motives in your heart that need to change. So now that you know that God doesn't just measure actions, but he also measures motives, how confident do you feel in your moral life? Not very, right? Well, you're right. If your confidence is anchored in you, it is a false sense of confidence. But of course, that doesn't end our self-confidence. And that's because most of life is hidden from view. Even the visible stuff we do, most of that is hidden. I mean, private life is, is hidden from the view of most people. And when you talk about the inside life, that often is hidden from us. We often don't realize the motives until they're really tested. And so we tend to think, that we have reason for confidence because we can pretend that we're better than we are to other people and we can fool ourselves, but not God. He goes on to say, nothing in all of creation, though, is hidden from God's sight. Everything outside and inside is uncovered. It's laid bare before the eyes of him to whom, not, not just watching, but to whom we must give an account, we must answer for our lives. So we may be able to put on a good show and fool people, and even ourselves, but there is no fooling God. God sees our actions, even if other people don't. He sees the motives of our hearts, even if we don't. And so while we are trying to cover things up and present a persona that is confident, he will uncover everything, and we will have to answer for it all. So what that means is if you are brimming with confidence in yourself, you just don't know the score. There is a timer on all of our self-confidence. Now, this may seem like a bad and depressing thought, but this is an important thought because this is the door to a better confidence. That brings us to the better confidence, faith confidence. That's the second point, faith confidence. False confidence is confidence in what you do. Faith confidence is confidence in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. It's described this way in the next verses in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. This is describing Jesus as the great high priest. Now, the role of the high priest in the Old Testament was to represent the people to God, and conversely, to represent God to the people. The high priest was the mediator between the people and God. Why? Why not just go direct to God? Well, it's because God is holy, and we are sinful. And that's not a mix that goes together. Holiness does to sin what fire does to wood. It destroys it. In the presence of God, we wouldn't be able to stand. We'd be destroyed. And this point was made very, very clear in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. The high priest would enter into a place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It represented the holiness of God, this place. And because it represented God's holiness, only the high priest could go in. And only after he would confessed his sin and the sins of the people. But their awareness of holiness was so clear that they would tie a rope around one of the ankles of the high priest as he went into this holy of holy place that represented God's holiness. And the reason for the rope is that if there was some unconfessed sin and the holiness of God struck the high priest dead, who was going to go in and get the body? Not me. I'm not going in that room. So there's this rope. You just pull the body out. Very, very clear image of how holy God is and how sinful we are. Now, Jesus is called the great high priest. The reason is because he is the final in a long line of high priests. He's the final one that all the previous high priests had pointed to. That's because he was God in flesh. There is no better mediator between God and man than God in a body. In the sacrifice of his perfect life, was the one final payment for our sin that all of the previous sacrifices had pointed to. And so he didn't just go into some earthly tabernacle that represented the holiness of God. No, as it says, he went to heaven itself to represent us. But none of this amazing stuff helps us if we don't accept this gift in faith, if we don't accept the forgiveness that he offers. And this is a Hold firmly, kind of faith, because we are a fall into sin easily kind of people. We will need to hold on to this faith and accept this and remember this gift over and over and over again every time we fail. You see, sin tends to loosen the grip of our faith, but it actually is a reason to strengthen that grip. Whenever you fall into sin, What expression do you imagine on the face of God? I imagine disappointment. I imagine kind of a shaking of the head in disgust and a looking away. The reason is because this isn't the first time I've sinned. And his love has got to be wearing thin with me. I mean, if the roles were reversed, my patience and my love would sure be wearing thin by this point. So in guilt and shame, we loosen our grip on our faith in this great gift of forgiveness, and we slink back into the shadows of guilt. The very moment that we need to hold tightly onto God's forgiveness and his love for us is the moment we feel most unworthy of that love. It's all because we project our response to sin onto God's face, and we think that's how he responds, and we are completely wrong. If you could see the face of God in the moment of your sin, you wouldn't see disgust. You wouldn't see a shaking of the head. You would see the face of God full of sympathy for you. Why? Because the power of sin is not something that God has observed us struggle with from the distance of heaven. No, he took on a real body and subjected himself to the real power and temptation of sin. That's why it says Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he has been tempted in every way, just like we are. Now, that is a nice-sounding sentiment, and it warms our heart. But if, like me, you think about it, it doesn't take very long for you to think, that doesn't sound possible, for two reasons. One is, it says, he was tempted in every way, just like we are. How can that be? There are a lot of ways to sin. And therefore, there are a lot of temptations for every one of those sins. And a bunch of the ways to sin that we now deal with hadn't even been invented when Jesus walked the earth. I mean, Jesus never struggled with the anonymous temptation of the internet and the darkness of of what that makes available to us. Because there was no internet when he walked the earth. So how could he have been tempted in every way The internet didn't even exist, and that's a source of temptation. And additionally, his life was different than my life. He was never tempted to argue with his wife or get a divorce because he was never married. What we don't realize is that every particular sin flows from a pretty small group or handful of springs or sources of sin. For example, there is the spring or the source of sin that is sexual lust and temptation. It's probably one of the biggest springs that has dominated the world since the fall into sin. Now, you don't have to be married to feel the strength of that pull of sexual sin. You just have to be alive to know about that one. Then there is the anger spring and all of the sins that flow out of anger. Then there is the fear spring and all the sins that flow out of that one. Then there is the pride and the envy spring. Now, if you've experienced the source, which Jesus did, of all of these temptations, you know by experience the power of every single sin that flows downstream and is weaker than the actual source. You see, Jesus experienced the power of temptation. And he's able to sympathize with everyone who's caught downstream in those streams. It's it's impossible for anyone to face every single kind of sin and temptation by it. But Jesus has been to the source of every temptation. So he's able to sympathize. The second reason we tend to question the depth of Jesus' understanding of our struggle with sin is that while maybe we'll concede he has faced the same kinds of temptations we do, it adds this one comment, yet was without sin. He never gave in. He was without sin. That's not been our experience. So how can he really sympathize with us? He never sinned. We do. Here's the error in our thinking on this. We tend to think that the more that you give into temptation, the stronger it grows. That's not the truth. It's the exact opposite. The more you give into temptation, the less it takes to get you to fall the next time. I mean, it takes a lot of temptation to get you to commit the first sin in an area. But now that you're at sin number 345 in that area, you're a pushover. I mean, all it takes is a thought, boom, you're gone. It took a lot more earlier on. We call it addiction. It doesn't take much temptation now to get us to fall. So what it feels like to us is that the temptation gets stronger, but the actual fact is we are getting weaker. Most of us only know the early levels of temptation because we cave in early and therefore we don't know the full weight and power that that temptation can be. You see, Jesus took on the very best the enemy had to offer in the temptation arena. He knows it all well. He's experienced more temptation and the power of more temptation than we'll ever imagine. So the demons in your particular closet are ones he knows well, and he knows all their friends. Even better than you do. So what that means is the look of sympathy on his face, for you and for me in the moment of failure, is real. It's real. And that brings us to the last kind of confidence. Failure confidence. Confidence when we fail, when we sin. Your moral failure is the test that reveals the source of your confidence. How you respond in the moment of sin is an automatic reveal about who you're really more confident in. Your performance, you, or the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the verse we started with, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of grace. Now, confidence and approaching thrones don't usually go together. When you walk into a throne room and there's a king sitting on the throne, you don't normally just strut in with confidence because there's power on that throne. I mean, the closest I ever got to a king was a former president. Back in 1990, I got a chance with a group of other people to meet Ronald Reagan, shake his hand, talk to him up at his office up in Century City. The reason is because the company I was working for before I came here, we had just published a a book about his presidency. And so even though I'd left the company just a few months earlier to come here, because I was a major part of the project, they invited me to join them as they presented him with the first official copy. Now, I was nervous. I was not confident. I didn't walk in there and say, hey, Ronnie, what's happening? (laughs) I mean, there's Secret Service all around. That's a sobering thing. He'd been president. I tried to look my best, tried to act my best. It was not confidence. And so now the King of Kings invites us to approach his throne with confidence. Why? What is the basis? For this kind, not flippancy, but confidence. What's the basis for this confidence? The basis for the confidence is not us, it rests in the throne. It's a particular kind of throne. It's called the throne of grace. Thrones, you see, are always elevated because it represents the authority of the one who sits on the throne. You walk into a throne room, and then there's always stairs that you have to climb to get up to the throne. But God's throne is the throne of grace, which means there aren't steps that we can climb to get up to it. He's actually lowered himself to us in order for us to get access to him. That's what he did when he took on a body and came to earth. It was the throne descending to earth. The reason God did this is because we are incapable of making the moral climb. In holiness up to him. So he came to us. You see, when we sin, if we're full of self-confidence, we tend to think that now we have to somehow cover the distance back to him. We have to do something, some kind of penance or feel bad enough for long enough in order for us to be accepted by him. But you see, the throne of grace means it's a mobile throne. We don't have to climb. It descends to us. Jesus covered that distance. Now all we need to do is come before God in confidence, not in ourselves, but in his grace. And when we do, we don't ask for mercy hoping that God's in a good mood today. No. We, it says, receive mercy. What that means is there isn't a transaction negotiated. That's already been negotiated. Jesus has already died for our sins he's already offering us forgiveness we just need to receive it and then what we do need to ask for is grace mercy is forgiveness grace is the muscle the power the help of god that helps us grow now i'll admit it when i sin and i confess it to god i struggle to do it with really any sense of confidence Why? Well, to be honest, I would much prefer to be confident in my moral performance rather than in God's forgiveness. I mean, I'd be happy to never have to accept God's mercy again because I don't need it. I'd rather not have to confess my sin because it means I have sinned. And so after all of these years for me and after all of these failures... The truth is this, I still honestly have more confidence in myself than I do in the mercy of God. I know that's not true, but based on how I respond when I sin, that's what it reveals. This is not logical, but the reason is because we are arrogant. We are so full of ourselves that even after God took on a body, came to earth, died in our place, offers us his mercy, We say, thanks, but I think I got this. I'll let you know if I need any of that eternal forgiveness stuff. But my real plan, my plan A is, I'm going to eventually become so amazing, that's not really going to be necessary. It'll be nice, but not necessary. These verses have taught me that there are two battles with every sin. There is the battle before I sin and the battle after I sin. Let me describe the two. The battle before I sin is about what? Not sinning. Right? This is the moment of temptation. When I'm struggling with, and I'm wanting to do the right thing, and it's a really good battle to fight, and I'm fighting, and I I don't want to fail. I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I want to do it for the right reason, and I'm struggling to do the right thing. That is a noble and good battle and we must fight it with all that we have and with all of the help that God can give us. This is the battle that's gotten most of my effort over the years. But what's the battle after our sin about? It's about not wallowing in guilt. Accepting the forgiveness that Jesus paid for with his life and believing that that really puts me right with God, and I have confidence before him. And his face is not shaking this way, and I don't have to spend three days flogging myself with guilt before finally I can look up his way. I wasn't even aware of battle number two for a long, long time. What's wrong with wallowing in guilt? We are guilty. What's wrong with wallowing in guilt is that it says that Jesus Christ died for nothing. That's what it says. Galatians 2, 21, I'm just... We don't have it on the screen, but what it says is we do not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What it's saying is that if if you can... Do the right. The law is what God says is right. If you can be righteous through your moral performance, then why in the world did Jesus take on a body and come here and don a cross? If, if you could actually do it, then his sacrifice was of no need. But that is not the case. None of us can do it. There is no reason to be confident in yourself. And so when I wallow in guilt, what I'm saying is, you know what? Out of everything Jesus did, that's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is what I just did, and that's not the case. The biggest deal is what Jesus did on that cross, and always will be. You see, when I wallow in my guilt, what it does is it puts me on the throne of my world rather than before the throne of God's grace. Now, let me go on to say something that might surprise you. And if it doesn't make sense, pray about it and think about it. I think this second battle is actually the key of the first one. The second battle is about admitting our weakness and accepting God's grace in Christ. That leads us away from self-confidence, false confidence, and it grows our faith. Why would God give you victory over your sin if it's only going to lead to self-confidence? That's one of the questions I've asked myself, is why hasn't God given me more victory over this sin or over that sin? And one of the answers I realize is that, you know, if I had gained victory over those sins 20 years ago, I would be so full of myself. And God knows that. So as I fall... I learn to grow in my confidence in his forgiveness. And that begins to unlock the power that helps me with battle number one. Hebrews 4, 16. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, we get brief glimpses that make it pretty clear how arrogant we are and how desperate we are to prove ourselves when what you did is beyond amazing and points to the fact that we have no reason to be confident in ourselves. Father, I pray for those here in this room that are wallowing in the misery of day after day after day of guilt. God, I pray you'd help them to get over themselves and accept with great joy and confidence your complete and total forgiveness. And help us as we move forward and we do the battle with sin, help us To not do it out of the sense that we're on this tight wire and if we fall, then we're just awful people, but to do it with a sense that you will catch us even as we try to grow. We thank you for your grace and your throne of grace that descends to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.